pages. Yeah, I'm not going to be here two hours. I, I'm looking at maybe two, possibly three weeks on this lesson. Um, I think it's important enough to take that time. So, um, and there's there's more that I want to add that's not in the notes too. So, yeah, I also have summary. I I don't have takeaways in this lesson because each section is going to have its own little section of takeaways. So it's a little bit different lesson. You'll see as we get into it that's a little bit different passage where it's not really a narrative passage. Um, so, in case you don't like Snickers or peppermints. Well, my understanding is that some of this candy is not for me, so I don't want to put it all in yet until I confirm that. So I'm just adding a few different ones for different people. I'm being nice. Okay, so good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. We are... In the point of Second Samuel, where we're coming to the close of the book, Second uh, Samuel ends towards the end of David's life, and we, uh, at this point, David has uh, put down several rebellions, one by his son, uh, one by uh, the nation of Israel as they broke away from him for a short period of time, and the nation seems to be at peace again. And we get to 2 Samuel 22, and the passage breaks away from the narrative to share a song that David wrote to the Lord. And so um, we're going to take some time with that. For those of you who weren't in here when you first got in here, no, I am not going to try to do all eight pages of the notes in one setting here. We're going to cover as much as we cover today, and then next week we'll pick up, and if we need a third week, we'll do a third week. So I'm not... not, deluded enough to think that I'm going to actually get through this whole thing. I, I, I understand that, and that was my intention, that this will take a few weeks. So, um, so this morning will be a little bit of a different lesson, because it's not going to be a narrative lesson, it's going to be more of looking at the contents of the psalm and what David uh, is talking about here. So, and then there's a couple of other things I want to cover as we do that, um, but let's go ahead and pray. We'll uh, open up the time here, and then we'll we'll talk about a few things, and then dig into the lesson. Lemuel, will you open us in prayer? Sure. Lord God, thank you for today. Thank you for fellowship. Thank you for Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about is not actually anything to do with the lesson. Um, it has to do with last week's lesson. The question came up about the death of the seven descendants of Saul and kind of how was that fair in God's eyes? How did that evoke God's justice? And why were these seven innocent men killed? And why did that satisfy God? 
And so I, I, I kind of gave an answer. I kind of tried to figure it out and then kind of said, I don't know, because I really didn't know. I think I have a better answer this week, so I'm going to share a little bit more about what I think is the right answer. And it goes back to the idea, first of all, you have to start out with, um, we tend to think as being in the age of grace, we think in terms of grace. Um, this would have been in the time of the age of law, and so we need to think in terms of law. And when you start looking at the Old Testament law, you start to look at the law, much of the law, justice was uh, uh, meted out by if you do something, the person gets to do something in return that's an equal response to that. For instance, uh, you've heard the phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, that kind of idea. You get if I was somebody knock out their tooth, they get to take your tooth. That was how the law dealt with that. Um, you'd look at like laws with oxen. If you steal somebody's oxen and they caught you, then you gave the oxen back with like a, a one-fifth additional fee on it because you stole their oxen. But if the oxen dies, then you have to give them one of your oxen that's an equal value to that because you have to repay them for what was stolen. So in this case, uh, you look at this, and what had happened is Saul went in with the army of Israel and tried to wipe out a whole nation. And so this nation, according to law, had the right to respond in kind to Saul. And so as I was saying about this, I was saying in, in the one part of the passage, remember, I kind of I glossed over it because I didn't know how to handle it, but I remember the Gibeonites said to David, we're not asking for a man to die in Israel. And I thought, well, that's kind of a weird thing to say. Well, now that it kind of makes sense because the right response would be Saul went in and tried to kill our nation. We, the correct response, the appropriate response would be we go in and try to kill parts of your nation in, in an appropriate response. And so what the Gibeonites were saying, we know that this is the appropriate response, that we would go in and kill men in Israel in proportion to what Saul killed of our nation. And so they're telling David, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to take the appropriate response according to the law. And that's why I think that phrase came up. And so the Gibeonites' response was actually a much more merciful response. Instead of saying, we can come in, you know, Saul may have killed, let's say he killed 20,000 of the Gibeonites. They, they could have said in response, the fair response, the appropriate response, for our 20,000 lives, we can go into Israel and kill 20,000 Israelite men. And so the Gibeonites saying, we're going to be merciful and we're just going to ask for seven of Saul's descendants in response. And so I think it was actually a much more merciful response than what they could have asked for under the law as a life for a life type of response. And so when we look at it, we say, well, these poor seven innocent guys, well, these seven innocent guys was actually a much more merciful response and God accepted that because the Gibeonites were being merciful to David in that judgment and saying, this is all we're going to take, it's just these seven men. And so that's, that's kind of my better answer, I think. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but I wanted to give you that because I had been thinking about that. That kind of bothered me that I went away and said, I don't know. And I think that makes more sense than what I gave last week. Gabriel. Do you think the Gibeonites are appealing to Israelite law? Or do you think they're, they're just asking for this kind of uh, retribution? And then David, understanding Israelite law, accepts? 
I, I don't know if they would be considered Israelites necessarily, but remember they lived with the Israelites for three, four hundred years. They would have known the customs. They would have known probably at least parts of the law and how it worked in Israel and would have known what the appropriate laws were. They worked as their woodcutters and their water gatherers, so they would have been, you know, they would have been in the Israelite culture and would have known what the Israelites believed and how they handled these things as they saw it acted out and as they saw it played out in, in, in the lives around them. So I think even if they, that wasn't what they believed, they could go to David and say, hey, we know that this is the right response, but this is what we wanted. Maybe they, they weren't concerned about fulfilling the law themselves, but they knew what the lawful response probably would have been on that. So that would be my guess. Again, that's, I'm kind of reading into that a little bit, but I, I think they, were, they, they lived among the Israelites. I mean, they were, they were basically slaves to the Israelites and worked for them and did their jobs for them. And so they would have um, been like, you know, if you're, your people lived in some country for seven, eight generations, you know what the country's laws are, you know, because you've always lived there. That's, this is how we do things here. And so I think they would have known that. Any questions on that? I, I, I'm hoping that clears it up a little bit because I thought I, I felt bad leaving it as an I don't know, and I thought it was important for me as a teacher to maybe try to figure out why a little bit more than just say I don't know. So, anyway, so let's get on to the real lesson this morning. Second um, Samuel 22. I call this David praises the Lord. About the most generic title that I could give a lesson, but that's what he's doing. So, Jana, your hand beat Matthew by just a split second. So I'm going to let you read verse one here. So we're going to look at the setting of the song. So the setting of the song here is the song was written to the Lord. This is David wanting to write a praise, a song to honor the Lord. And he does this, and the time frame of this is when God delivered David. And it gives kind of two time frames here, from all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, we could say, one, David delivered David, or God delivered David from the hand of Saul early on because that was at the beginning of the book a long time ago. But it could be from, um, you know, Saul, he's had, been having trouble with people in Saul's family and Saul's tribe for a while, so this could be part of that too. Um, but at this point, it seems like the kingdom settled again, the rebellions are over, things have settled down, and David's once again secure in the throne, and David's going to write the psalm of praise to God. So that's, that's kind of the setting of the psalm here. Uh, David, David has a kind of a chance to breathe this sigh of relief. Things have worked out. God's put him through uh, the, the punishment for his sin, and it's, it's kind of all over now. Things are back to normal, so to speak, and he's going to praise God and write the psalm, the song here that he has. I call it a psalm. I think it's kind of a psalm. I don't think it's actually a psalm psalm, but it's... It basically, as you see, it, it looks a lot like a psalm. So I, I may slip and say that a few times here. So that's the setting of the song. Uh, pretty straightforward. Um, and now we get into the big chunk of this, which may take a while. Okay, so verses 2 through 4. Um, and uh, you can pass this back to Jana before I forget. Matthew, you can go ahead. I know your hand went up earlier before. Thank you. 
So I want to stop here before we dig into this and get your help. So I want to talk about types. Types is probably the wrong word. I'm going to change that. I have that on the sheet too, types. I don't like that word. Um, So let's talk about ways salvation is used. And I'm thinking of four specifically. There may be more, and I can add them if they come up. But there's, there's four kind of ways salvation is used in the Bible, at least. And this is important because this is going to affect how we look at this passage here. And I want you guys to help me because I, you've been taught this before, and so I'm going to test your memory. You didn't know you were going to have a test this morning. So go ahead, Lynn. What's it? Okay, I'm going to call this a, a physical deliverance. A physical deliverance. I'll talk a little more about it in a second. What else? What are the ways of salvation used? It's usually not the first one that people answer, but a justification. Yeah, the, the just. This is what we talk about. This is mostly what we talk about, right? When I've been saved, God saved me. But what are we talking about mostly? We're talking about our justification. That's the point where we actually went from being an unsaved person to a saved person. Justification. Okay, what else? Abigail gets sanctification. What's sanctification, Abigail? You college student. It's going to be more like Christ. It's how our life is lived out. It's the process of going from a sinful human being to being more and more righteous and holy in our actions and the way we live. Okay, sanctification. What's the last one? Again, I may be missing a few, but the four main ones here. What's the other one I'm looking for? Glorification. What's glorification, Abigail? Okay, so it's glorification is the process of Christ taking us from these fleshly mortal bodies that are going to die and translating us into eternal heavenly bodies which don't die and in the process taking us from our bodies that possess a sin nature to bodies that possess no sin nature that will be perfect in eternity with God. Okay, so verses... Because I'm saying this, and you may be going here, well, Sean, you can say that. I don't know if I agree with you. So let's start with this one, justification. What verse tells us about being saved as part of the justification process? Give me a verse. I have one thought of, but there's, I know there's several. Somebody. This one should be easy. That's the one I was thinking of, too. Can you just quote it for us? By grace are you saved through faith, that out of ourselves, you give to God, out of works. Yep. For by grace you have been, have been, past tense, saved. You have been saved through faith. So when you believed in the past, you were saved. That's justification. That's a point of time you 
put your faith in Jesus Christ as uh, the one who died for you and rose again, and you were saved. Justification. Good. Next one, sanctification. What's a verse that tells us that salvation is, refers to the sanctification process? That might be a little trickier. What's that? Philippians 1.6. Give me Philippians 1.6. Okay, that's a good verse, and that does talk about the sanctification process. It doesn't talk about salvation in there. I want a verse that has the term salvation, and then maybe I wasn't clear, salvation and the sanctification. That's the one I'm thinking of. Thank you. Read that one for us. Good. Wait. So this one tells us that when you believed, you have been saved. This one's telling us you better work out your salvation. Now, which is it? I got to work out my salvation right now. That doesn't make any sense. Unless salvation doesn't talk about justification, aside from our sanctification, that we're working out our salvation as we live our lives. We're working to be more like Christ. We're working to be more holy in our lives. We're working to be more righteous and godly in the way we live. And so we're working on our salvation in that sense that we're becoming more Christ-like in our lives. So there's salvation in the sanctification sense. Glorification. Verse for that. If you don't have it, I got it. So, But everybody think of one. I'm giving you the opportunity. Okay. <laughs> Close enough. Uh, I'd like to get the actual. We could look it up. I can't find Romans in my Bible. I think somebody took it out. Okay, Romans eight twenty nine and thirty. Read that for us. Go ahead and read that for us, Pastor Dean. Okay, so that, that gives us the whole process there. Um, it doesn't relate salvation to the specific process of glorification. The word salvation, the term salvation to glorification, it does tell us that that's part of the process. So I want, I want where it says salvation and glorification are same term. Perhaps not giving the rules very good for this. <laughs> I do have a verse in Romans, if you're still in Romans. If you want to go to Romans 13.11... Romans 13, 11 says, and, this, and do this during the time that now is the high time to wake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Wait, if we're saved when we believe, how can our salvation be nearer than when we first believed? Well, unless our salvation talks about something else that's going to happen in the future, specifically our glorification. So that's Romans... 13, 11, that tells us salvation is a future event yet coming. 
our glorification. Yes? Yeah, so you have two, two toward. I have crucified Christ. No longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. Life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, and again, that, that, that covers both like, kind of the justification and sanctification process. So that, that gives us both those elements in there. Um, doesn't necessarily say um, this is salvation, but that's good. That's a very good verse. I like that verse. Okay, so I skipped this one because I want to go to this last. How do we know that salvation refers to physical deliverance? What's the verse that tells us that? Abigail. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about verses here. I, I bet you know the verse even if you don't know the reference because I'm going to sing something for you and you guys can help out. I know you've heard enough of me singing, right? You're tired of me singing. But you probably know this, this little chorus. I will call upon the Lord. Who is worthy to be praised? So shall I be saved from my sins. Wait, did I say that wrong? Did I? From my saved from my enemies. Yeah, there's there's a different word. It's not sins. It's not from my uh, unrighteous life that I'm trying to live. It's not being glorified. It's from our enemies, right? That's uh, Psalm eighteen three. And these are just examples, of course. Psalm 18.3 talks about being saved from my enemies. This is a physical deliverance from an actual real enemy that David's talking about. That I'm going to be saved from a guy with a spear that's trying to kill me. An enemy. Or, yeah, or, yeah, I don't think David had guns back then. but um, In our case, it could be a gun, yes. So, so as we look at this song that David wrote... David's writing with this idea right here is physical deliverance. Now, as we look at it, that doesn't mean that we can't look at this and say when he talks about God being his salvation or God being his savior, that we can't say, well, we understand that God's also a savior when it comes to justification, that God is a savior when it comes to sanctification in our life, and God is going to be a savior when it comes to our glorification, because that's all true, and that's all true of God. And we can apply it that way. But as we're looking at it and we're trying to get the meaning out of this, we, we need to understand this is where David is coming from. And this is going to give us some insight as we look at, especially some of the imagery he uses in this song, that you're going to go, oh, he's describing God this way because he's thinking like this. That makes sense. So that's why I wanted to bring this up here, because I think it's important as we read through this and we understand the psalm. So, um, so this first part of the psalm, let's go back to what we're, or the, the song here. I keep on saying psalm. Psalm, song, I think interacting, uh, in, I think those terms are okay. Um, and I didn't give you the word, did I? God is a saving God. And again, like I said, I think David's thinking this way, but I think we can say that's true of all these things here. And we can praise God for 
all those things. But looking in the context of how David's writing, we're going to reflect on some things based on he's looking at this, and as we look through this passage, you'll see that a lot of what he's referring to is, God, you saved me because the Philistines were throwing spears at me. They were swinging swords at my head. They were trying to crush me into the ground and take away my kingdom. And so he is thinking in that manner. So God's character here. In this first part of this, these first couple of verses, Davis is really focusing on who God is, his character, his attributes here. Uh, the first thing he says is, the Lord is my rock. And this idea of rock, this emphasizes God's stability, his permanence. We think of rock as, you know, uh, Pastor Dean brought in a rock this morning. That was a rock. But the idea of rock is like a rock formation, a rock, a, a giant hard place that's just permanent there. It's that, that place is there. You know, you go and you see this rock formation, and it's there, and then you'll go back 10 years, and the rock formation is still there because it's standing, it's solid, it's not going anyplace. You know, it, it's, it remains there, and God is that rock. He's solid. He doesn't change. He's permanent. And David is pointing that out. And there's a couple of passages I put in there. And I, um, the one I want to go to, let's go to that first Samuel one, because we did look at that in class of, you know, eons ago when we studied first Samuel. Uh, does anybody remember the context of first Samuel too? What was going on? I don't know if you can remember that far back. That was a while ago. What's that? Yes, and what was she doing in 1 Samuel 2? Well, she was praying in 1 Samuel 1. In 1 Samuel 2, she had the baby, and so she was... Yes. She, she has a song of praise, right? I guess it was a prayer, so you're right. I'm sorry. So, verse 2 says, No one is holy like the Lord, for there's none besides you, nor is there, nor is there any rock like our God. And so, you know, Hannah starts out the book of Samuel with this idea in, in chapter 2 of the rock, and David comes back to that idea here in chapter 22 of Second Samuel, almost at the end of the chapter, and comes back right away to God is the rock. He's, he's unchanging. And um, throughout this, I, I think, you know, you look at the, the people of Israel who, you know, they struggle to get a land, they, they struggle to get an inheritance. For them, the idea of a permanent God who doesn't change, who's solid, who's always there, that's, that's a comfort to them. And, and it should be a comfort to us that, that we have an unchanging, permanent, solid God who, who's always there for us. Uh, that's something we can praise God about, that he is a rock. And I think we don't talk about God being our rock so much as Christians. We, like, we talk about his grace and his mercy and his love and sometimes his righteousness and his holiness. But God is a rock, and we need to remember that. So I think that's a good thing. That's, a, that's the first thing in, in David's psalm. The Lord is the rock. Then the next thing he says is, the Lord is my fortress. And again, remember, David's thinking as God's a savior, as a physical deliverer. So he's using this imagery, he's a fortress. <laughs> he's, so, so this is, you know, as he's thinking of physical deliverance, what, what, what's a better imagery for God than God being a fortress? You know, he, he's saying about how God's de- delivered him from all these enemies, and 
maybe he's dwelt in fortresses in the past. Jerusalem's kind of a fortress city, but his fortress is not, not Jerusalem. It's not the caves that he, that he fled from Saul in. It's not when he went to the Philistines and dwelt in their cities. His fortress is the Lord. That's, that's where his safety is at. And the fortress this is a strong place of defense. It's, it's used actually in this book to describe Jerusalem as a fortress. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 22, it's used to describe the caves where he took refuge in after he fled from uh, the Philistines when he feigned madness. You remember that story where he um, was going to end up having to fight his own people, so he, he decided to act like he was insane. Um, and then the, the Philistines said, we don't want the insane guy coming with us. <laughs> so, so after that, he fled to these caves, and at, at some point he talked about these caves as he describes these caves as his fortress. And so it's, it's a strong place of defense, and God is David's strong place of defense, and he praises God that he knows that God will be his defender and will be his protector. Uh, he also says that God is my deliverer in verse 2 here. Uh, deliver. The core idea of this word is to escape. Now, um, I want to talk about something else here too, and I want to take a break off of the side here. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm doing this a lot in the beginning because I want to establish some things on this passage. Um, a lot of this, I realized as I was making these notes that I'm going to give you words out of the passage, and I'm going to say, well, this word kind of has this meaning, or this word kind of has this kind of nuance to it. And I don't want you to lose confidence in what we have as the Word of God. Um, so I want to kind of explain what I mean by that. So I'm going to give you a couple examples of some things. Um, what are these words? What type of words are they? Prepositions. So kind of give me a thought of what, what do these prepositions mean? What what? Give them kind of a meaning. Can somebody kind of distinguish why these three words are different? What, what makes them different? What, what does four mean? What does... Thank you, Nathan. Okay, can we get a serious answer from someone other than Nathan? How, how would you... If someone said, what does four mean in English? Like, someone who was... Okay. It's kind of a reason, right? It's kind of a, maybe a causative. You might say causes. It's for that. Something like that, right? Okay. How about by? Yeah, it could be, it could be, uh, uh, it could, could uh, reference uh, the, the, uh, uh, the object, yeah. means or an agent. Means or an agent. That's good. Like that. Means or an agent. Age. I don't. <laughs> age. It's a G, right? Agent. Thank you. I could also be. Uh, I'm a geographer, so I think of by as also location, right? Okay. Yeah. It's by a tree. It's by Lake Michigan. Yeah. It by could be a vocational type thing. What about two? Okay. Yeah, we might say like a direction. It could be a direction as in a, like a physical direction or a direction of the action. Like a, like you say, you're doing it to somebody. That's a, that's a direction of the, the actions going. 
So there's, there's kind of nuances to this. Well, in Hebrew and Greek, oftentimes you get one preposition that carries all three of these three aspects. And you can translate them, any one of those three words, several other words, against, under. And it makes it kind of frustrating at times when translating. And, and this is one of the problems with languages, is that things don't translate one-to-one necessarily. Um, another example is I was in a, a King James-only church, um, and the, the guy who was up there preaching, and then the most part, and I don't want, want to be bad about the guy, because most part of the sermon was really good, but he came up to one point and he said, uh, he brought the passage where uh, to them he gave them the power to become the children of God. And he goes, I really like the King James here, and this is why I'm, I'm King James only, because the New King James translates it, to them he gave the authority to become children of God. And it dismisses that idea of power, that he gave them that ability, that power, that strength to become children of God. And I'm like, that doesn't sound right. And I went back to my Greek, because I was a cocky seminary student, and I, like, I got my Greek Bible. I looked, and uh, the Greek word carries the idea of, guess what? Authority. Now, is power a bad word? No, because we say stuff like, you know, the police have the power to arrest you. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean they have the physical strength to overwhelm you and arrest you? Well, if there's enough of them, yes, they do. But really what we're saying is that they have that authority to come and arrest you if you committed a crime. Or like the government has the power to make laws. Well, does that mean that they have the power to get to their computer and type out a bill, print it out, take it to the Senate? They have the power to get up there and speak? No, they have the authority to do that. So we do use power and authority interchangeably. But there's certain words that you may translate two words as power, but they're two different words that have kind of different nuances. So that I'm trying to do here when I put words in here and say this kind of means this. I'm not trying to say that that's a bad word that the translators use. The translators are trying to get the best word in there that they can and, and make it make the most sense to us. But I'm trying to give you maybe there's a nuance here that we're missing that we don't see in English because these words don't always translate one-to-one between English and Hebrew. So, that's, so if you see that and go, boy, that, I don't know if I can trust my Bible. No, you can trust your Bible. Translators are doing a really good job getting this translated. It's just sometimes it's very hard to go from one language to the other and really understand. Um, one other funny, I'll give you one more funny story about translation. So um, Chevy was trying to sell a new car in Mexico. Yeah. And um, they, it, this car that sold really good in the United States, people loved it. Got down to Mexico, it would not sell. Nobody bought it. They just couldn't understand why. We can't figure out why does this car not sell. It's, it's a great car. It gets great gas mileage. It's an, an inexpensive car, but nobody would buy it. The car was called the Chevy Nova. In Spanish, no va is no go. So, so again, you got to be careful with translations and stuff. It's, they weren't they weren't thinking the outer space object. They were thinking, we don't want a car that doesn't go. So anyway, so so when when you see the stuff in here where I say the idea of this word is this, I'm trying to give you different nuances of the word that we may miss in English, but it's not to say that the translation's bad in here. Although there are a couple of places where um, I looked at. Several different translations, like six of them have been translated one way, and the New King James has this. I'm wondering, why did you 
choose that word, but that's beside the point. So we'll talk about those places when we get to them. Um, so we're at number three here, deliverer. And the idea of this word is to escape. That, and, and the idea is that he, he gives us, he gave David an escape. He gave David a way out. He, he provided David when David was in distress, when he had no other options, that he got David out of that situation, delivered him from that situation. And God here is delivering David from his enemies. Again, thinking about this idea of this physical deliverance, that David's thinking, you know, God provided this when no one else could, when there was no other way out, when there's nothing else that could help me. God was my deliverer. God was the one who was able to do this. And so to help him escape. Um, and then number four here, uh, he says, um, he's the God of my strength. And this is literally God of my rock. And so he's coming back to this idea of rock again. And um, just, just, again, the permanence. He's the God of my rock. He's my God of my permanence, my, the one I can trust, the one that I can put my faith in because he doesn't change. He doesn't move. And I know he's always there. Um, and he provides David his safe foundation. And so, you know, David, I think... Again, you think of David's life and how often he, he started out as a shepherd and then you know, very early as a young kid he gets anointed king but then he's, he gets chased around by Saul all over the place. He has no permanence in his life. He, has, he, he goes to the Philistines for a while, a couple of times. You know, he dwells in caves. He doesn't see his family. And to, for him to see a God who is stable, who's solid, who's a foundation, who can trust, that doesn't change, I think that means a lot to him. That with his life in chaos a lot of the time and you know, fleeing from his son and, and having to leave the country because his son's trying to kill him. And then coming back and then having ten tribes take off and say, we don't want you anymore as king. He can trust that God is faithful and God is solid and God is sure. And so the God of his rock, that is his foundation, that, that he can place his faith in him when all else is in chaos around him, that God is that solid foundation he can stand on. And he can be sure that that's not going to change. That's reassuring. And, you know, you may look in your life and say, there's, there's things going on in my life. But things are out of control in my life. I'm having trouble with this or that. Or circumstances aren't good. My job, my kids, my family, my neighbors, my, you know, my finances are out of control. But God is always there, a solid foundation that we can stand on and we can depend on. And I think David found that in his life. And as he went through trials and he went through hard times, he learned to depend and trust on God. So, the God of my rock. And then uh, the God, it says, uh, the God of my rock, um, the God of my strength, he talks, and in, in whom I trust, uh, the God, literally the God who I seek refuge, that when he needs a place to hide, he needs a place for safety, that's the God, he turns to God. It's David's place of safety, and that God can provide that for him. Um, then he calls uh, God his shield. Again, thinking as salvation as a physical deliverance, a shield makes perfect sense, right? He, he's thinking of being delivered from his enemies. The shield is one of what is his best pieces of gear. This protects me from the dangers. This protects me from arrows flying at me. This protects me from somebody throwing a spear at me. I have a shield, and God is my shield. God is the one who's protecting me from all these things. God is the one who's taken care of me and preserved his life. David has faced overwhelming odds throughout his life. Uh, he's, he's faced 
he has had 600 men against Saul's tens of thousands. He's had, you know, his small band fleeing from his son who had the whole armies of Israel. And yet God has protected him and kept him safe. And he sees God as his shield and his protector. Um, again, uh, next he says, the horn of his salvation. Uh, we talked about this a long time ago. Uh, in fact, the same lesson when we talked about Hannah's prayer there. Um, the symbol of strength, the horn is the symbol of the strength. So God is the strength of his salvation. Again, being reminded that, as David's saying about physical deliverance here, that the strength of his physical deliverance is not in his armies, it's not in his mighty arm, it's not in his military acumen. It's in God. That's where his strength comes from. That's where his salvation comes from. And God is able to do that. So God is the horn, the strength of his salvation. And God is strong in saving or strong to save. And we, we use that term sometimes. I've heard that in a number of praise songs that church is saved, God's strong to save. And um, I don't think people maybe get the whole, whole strength of that. But God is the only source. He's the only one who's strong enough, who's mighty enough, who's powerful enough to save us. He's also our stronghold. Again, another term that is you're thinking as a military thing, a stronghold here is literally a secure, a height, a retreat. Uh, so you're thinking of military, you're thinking of high places, easy to defend. The stronghold would be built up on a hill, and you could go up there, and as people are trying to get up the hill, you can throw stuff down at them, um, toss oil, toss boulders, toss large objects. It makes a strong, an easy place to defend, and God is David's stronghold. It's a place he goes that's easily defended, that he can remain in God and be safe there. Uh, so another military image there. His refuge, uh, literally a place of flight or a place of escape, the place he goes. Uh, and we talked a little bit about uh, the God whom I seek refuge. So again, he's repeating that. Um, his Savior, the one who saves David. And David is well aware that God is the source of his salvation. We'll see that later on as we go through this in the next couple of weeks or so. Um, he refers to over and over that God is the source of salvation. And I think, again, as we look through his life, you know, David, David, again, has faced many, many enemies, many, many adversaries, and a lot of times just really not in a position where, humanly speaking, he should have won many of these fights. And yet, he always came out on top of these things. And David says, it's not me, it's God who has done this. It's God who has saved me. And he recognizes that and he acknowledges that. And I think it, it just shows where David's heart is, that he knows what God has done for him. And he finishes this up with, that God is worthy to be praised. And, you know, he's, he's looking at this, and I think he's, he's making this statement that only God could accomplish all this in David's life, and so only God is worthy of David's praise. And as he sits in a nation that has struggled with idolatry, as he is in a nation that's surrounded by idolatrous nations, and they're worshiping all kinds of different gods. And he even spent time with the Philistines, so he's seen their idol worship close up. And he recognized that there's only one God, and only one God that's worthy to be praised, and I'm going to be praising him. That's my goal in life. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to accomplish, is to set my praise towards God. And... Uh, as he looks back and sees what God has done and who God is, you know, he, he's made that his intent and his desire to praise God. And so, and then in here he reflects a little bit on God's actions. A couple of things he says is to save him from violence and to save him from his enemies. 
uh, kind of very similar things. Um, so I think one emphasizes the actions of the men, the violence that's against him, and the other one kind of emphasizes the men that are against him. So one is that, that people have tried to hurt him, and the other people is, the, the, I guess one emphasizes people have tried to hurt him, and the other one is that people have tried to hurt him. So you're emphasizing both the people and the, the hurt that's come against him. Um, so he, he's, he's got, to, got to save him from both the violence, from the, the hurt that's come, and also from the men who have had that bad intent against him. So what do I learn from this? I say in this section we see David's inability to save himself or secure his own place and the overwhelming odds which are against him. But in contrast to that, we also see God's sufficiency to save, to protect, to uphold those who serve and call upon him. We also see God's faithfulness to David, and David has trusted in God, and God has not failed to rescue him. And how does that affect us? Well, God is just as faithful as before. He's still that rock. He's still that solid foundation. He hasn't changed. And you know, God promises that we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, that he is going to save us. And he promises that none can pluck him out of his hand, so that we put our trust in him. We're saved, and, and we're secure with God. And we can have faith in that. We can trust in that. We can believe in that because we have a solid God, the God who's a rock, the God who's strong to save, the God who is, is faithful, who's a shield, who's a protector, who's a stronghold, who's a fortress. This is our God. He hasn't changed. The same God that David worships, the same God that we have. And we can, we can take great comfort in that. We can take great uh, hope in that, that God has not changed. And we can believe and trust in his his uh, promises to us and his, his desire to save us and to, to keep us and to protect us. And so uh, this should be an encouragement in our lives and even whatever circumstances we're going through, if we're going through hard times, if we're going through difficulties, that God is a rock. He's unchanging. He's strong to save. He's, he's there for us. And so this, uh, to me, uh, you know, I, I think in the past, I probably read through Second Samuel, I don't know how many times as I read through my Bible reading, and probably missed all this, and it took me this time to sit down and study it out to really look at this and go, wow, this is really, there's so much in here about just who God is that I've missed. And just really helps me reflect on just some of the nature of God that I have not thought about in the past. And so I'm hoping that maybe you're seeing some of this too. I'm going to actually stop after each point and give you an opportunity to, to share, because I don't want to just keep talking and lecturing necessarily, but I want to share anything. Maybe you've seen something here that is an encouragement to you or um, that helps you reflect on who God is or something that you said, yeah, yeah like this really, really encourages me or I, I haven't seen this before. So I'm going to give you a second to share that. Um, I'm not in a hurry to get through this. I think this is really, as you see through this, this is really a great song that David writes and there's a lot of theology in here that we can pick up. So I'm not in a hurry. We'll take our time through this. So what, what are your thoughts? Anything you want to share? What's that? I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not hearing very well. He guides. He guides, yes. Yeah, he does guide us too. That's good. Brenna, your hand was going up too. Thank you. 
What's the passage on that? I think it's interesting you brought up uh, the rock and the waves and stuff because later on David talks about being saved out of many waters and stuff and kind of the imagery is waves and sea and, and deep waters and stuff like that. So I think maybe he has that imagery in his mind too. It's not just like a rock. Yeah. Yes. Yep. That's good. Any other thoughts? Pastor Ian? Yes. Yes, that's a good point. Yeah, that's true because God does promise us that we're going to go through trials and tribulations, and that's part of our refining process and our sanctification. So it may look different than God slaying all our circumstances, making things easy, right? Yes. Right. That might be a better way to put it, yes. Good. I, I appreciate that because that's, that's a good point. That was actually something I had thought about and just blanked out there. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Jonathan. I personally always like the idea about God being a protector. <clears throat> I can think of multiple times where I came close to being hurt or even killed once or twice. Not just being on the farm and having to get in an accident or almost getting right up to anything. Yeah, and I think our lives are in our hands. And there, there have been, you know, Christians that have died for their faith, and there have been Christians that have died. What we would say would be prematurely, as far as thinking of like a long life or whatever. But that's in God's plan too. And so, you know, um, whatever God chooses on that, that's true. But He certainly can, and I think has in different times stepped into people's lives and put his hand of protection around them and, and help them. And I've, I've seen people like um, who have been on their deathbed, basically, and they've, the church has come and prayed for them, and the doctors, well, you don't know what happened, but they're, they're recovering. And, well, I, I have a feeling I know what happened. I think that God stepped in, and I don't believe in, like, you know, us laying on hands and performing miracles ourselves, but I believe that God still is in the business of doing miraculous things and so but that's up to God and that doesn't guarantee God's necessarily going to do it like Pastor Dean said he may not take you out of the circumstances but he's there through the circumstances that you can depend on him and um, you know Paul Paul prayed and again this is a verse that's really helped me through some things but Paul prayed three times for the thorn that was in his side that God removed the thorn in my side it's and we think it's probably something pretty terrible that he was going through 
And God said, uh, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Just You can get through it. And Paul accepted that and said, okay, I'm going to keep working for God. Um, I'm going to go through one more point because I think telling my other Sunday school teachers that I got through two points is probably going to discourage them greatly. So we'll try to do one more today, and then we'll stop after point three. Um, it's a little bit, it's not a full page, so, uh, you know, it's not quite as long. I'm going to let Miriam read Lemuel. So God hears our distress. And again, I think the idea that God hears means a lot, especially, again, you think of where David was at, in a nation that had not always been faithful to God, that had struggled with idolatry amongst a number of nations that were very idolatrous around them. And their idols don't hear them. Their idols don't have ears. Their idols, you know, they're not real. Obviously, there's not real gods there. But, um, you know, a number of times in, in, in Scripture, it talks about that the idols can't hear their, the prayers of the people because they're not real. To have a God that actually hears and listens, that's a huge thing. We take that for granted. We, we think, oh, I can pray to God. That's great. Do you understand that? The God of the universe, the God that created all things, the God who put you here, who knit you together in your mother's womb, that God will listen to you, that he cares about you, that he wants to know what's going on. Uh, he knows what you're going on, right? but he wants to hear from you about what's going on and wants to hear your struggles and wants to hear about these things, even though he knows, and he knows what he's going to do about them, and he knows that you know, sometimes you're going to be whiny and selfish when you pray. He still wants you to pray to him, and he's going to listen. So that God hears, that's a huge deal. And so as we look at this, David talks about his predicament. And um, I want you to think here, you know, this is a little bit poetic, and David does this in this, this passage. Was David uh, in waves and in floods? Not necessarily, but what's that? Not that, Not that we know of, yeah. I don't know that I remember any of the passages where David was out on a boat in the Mediterranean or anything like that, but uh, the waves of death surrounded him. Was he in danger of dying? Oh, yeah, he was, right? And then he said, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. He was afraid because of the ungodliness around him. Now, here's a man who's trying to live righteously for the most part, and there's ungodly people. His general was one of the most bloodthirsty men in the nation, and this is the guy he's depending on, and he had to deal with that all the time. And you know, how many times has he said, "What have I had to do with you guys, sons of Zeruah, or whatever her name is?" You know, how how exhausting that was to deal with these guys. He was he's afraid because of what could happen here. He's surrounded by the sorrows of Sheol. What's what does Sheol represent? Yeah, it's it's the realm of the dead. He's surrounded by the sorrows of death. He was confronted uh, by the stairs of death. So, you know, this was all around him all the time. 
And what was his solution? So in his distress, his solution was he called upon the name of the Lord. He cried out to God. That was his solution. That was the place where he could go. He could call to God and bring his distress. He could bring his fear. He could bring all this, this stuff, this turmoil that was going on around him and bring it to God. And that's, that's what's David's solution here. And God's response was that God heard his voice from his temple, from heaven. And the cry entered God's ears. And that's just, again, an amazing response that God listens to us. And again, I don't think we can take that for granted. So David here, again, in all this turmoil and all that's going on in his life, when he, he, he struggles and when he's in distress and when he's fearful, his solution is, I'm going to turn to God. I'm going to go to God. I'm going to pray to God. That's a good lesson for us to learn. What do we do? Do we whine to our wife, to our kids, to our neighbors, to our friends? Oh, do I hear about my horrible life? Or do we go to God when we're facing turmoil, when we're facing trials? Do we talk to God? So, my little note there. David was faced with evil and the evil intents of men surrounding him and threatening to overwhelm him. Having no other option, David cries out to a faithful God who hears his cry. God is an imminent... God is... It should probably be just God is imminent. You can take out the and there. God is imminent. He is always he is among us, and he cares for us. We can cry out to him, and he will hear us. Um, I've been reading in Hebrews, so this verse came to mind. Hebrews has been part of my Bible reading. Uh, Lemuel, I'll let you read that one since you were so anxious to read. You want to read that little Hebrews passage there on the bottom? So here, and this is in Hebrews, so this is written to us as saints, that we have Jesus Christ, who has been, uh, who is our high priest, who can sympathize with our weakness. He knows what we're going through. He knows the struggles we have. He knows uh, what kind of issues go on in our life. He's been through that. It says here that he was tempted, he was tested in all points. He was tempted in all points as we are. Yet without sin. So he, he knows what we struggle with. And because of that, we can go to him. We can say, God, I'm struggling with this. I'm having trouble with this. I'm having difficulty in this area of my life. I'm facing these trials. I need help. And it says that we can obtain mercy and grace in that time of need. Because God cares about us. God knows what we're going through. God understands. And that's a great promise that we have. Again, does that mean that God will take us out of the circumstances? Not necessarily. But he's, he's going to give us what we need to make it through that. He's going to help us through that. He's going to give us the grace and mercy that we need to do what's right, to please him, to walk in his ways, to be righteous in those situations. And so when you think, you know, I'm in this situation, no one understands, no one can help me, it's, it's awful, it's horrible, I can't do this. 
you know what, there's someone that does know that. There's someone that can help. There's someone that does care. There's someone that can help you through that situation. Jesus Christ knows what you're going through. We can cry out to him. We can call out to him. And he understands. And he's ready to give you that mercy and that grace to help you through that situation. And David, you know, David didn't know Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ wasn't around then, but David knew he could go to God. He could call upon the Lord. He knew the Lord would hear and would listen to his cry. And David had that understanding that when he was in turmoil, when he was in distress, when he was in these trials, that he could turn and go to God. And that was his best and maybe only option in his life to find the help that he needed to get through his situations. So I'm going to stop there and let you give any input you have, and then we'll close for the day. I'm going to ask you to keep your sheets. I don't want to keep on printing all these pages out each week, so please put them someplace safe. But any, any thoughts on this second section? That was an ambulance, so I hope not. Huh? I hope not. Okay, let's go ahead and uh, close in prayer. Uh, Matthew, will you close us in prayer, please? Oh, yeah, um, we are having a meeting for the, the Walking Taco Outreach shortly here, so we're going to have it in this room. So if you're interested in that at all, if you want to be a part of that or want to find out more information about that, please stick around here. And Yeah, about 10 minutes or so. Well, let's... Also, the primary election is June 7th. Yeah, primary election is June 7th, so if you're interested in voting, which hopefully you are, put that on your calendar. By Mason Crosby.
Okay. to the um, if you go to the church North Shot Church I've got the, the link here to Damn DSM you click on that and it takes you to the Faith Life which is this is a slide you see for the screen there and then right here is a link to sign up right here yeah I didn't see that yeah yeah <laughs> see if you go to North Shot Church Well, yeah, this is kind of like a. We haven't got a link to see the, uh, the new, new, showing the new screen from the there. This North Shot Church. There's this other church apparently. Which is North Church track actually. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think that anybody says they know about it. Oh, okay. 
You'll see in mine when I click on these three little dots up here and say add to home screen. But when you put it on the... So I have, I try to put the most important stuff on there. And I try to put the most important things like, so if you go up here and get the sermons, but then here's that, I have decided. Um, connection card where people fill. If you have any comments or suggestions on them, um, I could change it or add things to it. Um, like, so I can change these buttons here, like, like that volunteer for the pastor, my mother. And then if they have prayer requests, I don't ask them to yes or no. So we can also use like a prayer request too. And I added this for Jesus Christ, I can like I did that for I could change the verbiage however we want to change it too. And then when they fill that, it saves on the website and then it sends a, an email link to me that you know, this one's filled up the card. Turn some things off. I didn't do that yet. 